on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I see Monsignor Sokolovsky here, that my interest in the gift started when I took a class with him on, a, on Aristotle and the virtue in the Nicomachean Ethics, and I wrote a paper on heretical virtue in relation to the gifts. That paper I still have, Monsignor, because you accepted to take a paper that was handwritten with the French and writing. You only asked me that it would be clear, and I did my best. But you see, it's a long-standing thing that is very much part of my life. It's, if you, for a young student of the Thomistic theology, you go to the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, or the French tradition, you will find a statement by Gardeil saying how the doctrine of the gift is a traditional doctrine of the church. Simple as that. And he implies the doctrine of the gift as found in St. Thomas reflects the standard common tradition of the church. The Jesuits took some exception to this general broad statement. And another one, there was a long debate among French Jesuits and French Dominicans about the moral life. Garrigou Lagrand and other Jesuits wrote that St. Thomas changes his mind in the course of his life about the gift of the Holy Spirit. To which Garrigou Lagrand, Father Garrigou Lagrand, responded, no way. It's the same thing said differently. And he keeps saying it, you know, St. Thomas had said, you know the famous distinction, humano modo, ultramodum humano. Well, factually, the Jesuit was right. Whatever his intentions were, he was right. Now, in this paper, scholastic tradition and theological challenges, I want to explain where this question arose in the Middle Ages, how it developed. That will be the first introduction, very short. And then what St. Thomas tried to make up. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we come to know it through Aquinas, if we are in the Thomistic tradition, that's a thing of the 12th century. Very clearly identified 12th century theologian, and even in the 12th century, with the most active members of the Gregorian reform. It starts with Anselm of Canterbury, it goes through Rupert of Deutz, Bernard, and you of St. Victor are the major proponents, but it is still something of preaching with no fixed content. You just have an expression, Dona Sancti Spiritus, to describe the seven terms of the spirit which rests upon the shoot of the stock of Jesus. That's it. That's all you have. And you make whatever you want with this. So it's interesting when you read, you start to read from the 12th century on that the expression and the theme of the Holy Spirit comes regularly in authors, but everyone does what he wants with it. So there's a tradition, and there is something that is consistent, but it is also 
very consistently inconsistent. <coughs> this motion will slow down in Paris in the middle of the 13th century after Philip the Chancellor. Before this, it entered in the scholastic studies as a question through the Summa Sententiarum. Summa Sententiarum is not known. It should be consulted because it, its outline offers the model followed by Lombard when writing his sentences. Summa Sententiarum, not a very original book, takes a lot of U of St. Victor's theology when he opposed Abelard. That's as much as we can say. And the date is somewhere between 1136 and 1141. Lombard takes the outline, so he puts in a third book two distinctions on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as he found a tract, and a, a chapter in the third tract, in the Summa Sententiarum. And he did something totally different from what he had found in his model. What Lombard needed were intellectual virtues, for which they had nothing, because the Nicomachean Ethics had not been fully translated at that time. So with the intellectual gifts, he found something to be. And then he had something which he would never find in any pagan ethics, fear and piety. For Aristotle, you go to theater to purify yourself from fear and piety. Fear of danger, piety towards criminal. So of course you would have no pagan treatment as fear and piety as something belonging to the moral perfection. Their presence in the sevenfold list of Isaiah allows Lombard to deal with them and to introduce them. So that's what we have. And with Lombard, as you know, the sentences will be followed first spontaneously and then obligatorily by all theologians. So everybody from that moment on, and especially after the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, will have to deal with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they will all do, but they will all try, you know, they have a title, a theme, a biblical references, different autoritates from the fathers, some early pre-digestion, scholastic pre-processing of it, and they are not satisfied, so they all try to do this, to do something about it, and no one looks like the previous one, always contemporary. An exception with Philip the Chancellor and his Summa de Bono. That's very important because it shifts the question, it originates a tradition. 
shifts the question. Up to this moment, yes, there is always the initial question is, are the gifts identical to or different from the virtues? That's the way the question is phrased. How, what it means is, very precise, is fear of the Lord different from poverty? Is piety identical or different from meekness? So you recognize through this the Augustinian origin of the question in the Desomino Domini. You may identify an intermediary point in Pascasius Radbertus making formula, which I call synthetical formula, because he puts all the elements when he's changing the doctrine of his patristic models. And he writes in a simplified version, the Lord has given us the petitions of the Our Father so that we can obtain the gifts of the Holy Spirit in response to those petitions. And with the gifts, we can practice the virtues, that is, the first part of each of the Beatitudes, in order to obtain, as a recompense, merit premium, the Beatitude attached to it. So we have this structure, and that's the basis in which the question was discussed. What is the role of fear toward poverty, or wisdom toward being a peacemaker. Phil the Chancellor is not the first who changes the content, but he is the one who is responsible for this change to become standard. After Propositunus Cremonensis, I don't know how to say this in English, Prevotan Cremon, you know, we, there is a change. The virtues are no longer the virtues of beatitude, but the three theological virtues and the four carnal virtues. So you have a question which is phrased in the same way, but which means something totally different. So you have is, what is the relation of fear of the Lord, piety, etc. To faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. That's how the question, you know, that's it, the general framework which emerges and will remain. They will never be going back to the virtues of beatitude. Then Philip the Chancellor, who is a brighter, rather energetic theologian, who knows Aristotle, so it takes in a lot of Aristotelian ethics in his moral theology, tries to order things very differently. So he devises a fourfold ascending sequence of in Christian perfection, virtues gifts, beatitudes, and fruits. He's not always very consistent on four. Sometimes it's three, because he doesn't know exactly what to do with the fruits in this. 
And the main difference between virtues and gifts, virtues as he understands, theological and cardinal, is that the virtues conform us to follow Christ's actions, and the gifts conform us to follow in Christ's passion. St. Thomas will say, this is just false and a view of the imagination. That's in the Summa. But Philip the Chancellor is followed by the main masters, Alexander of Ailes, Odo Rigaldus, Bonaventure on one, Albert and St. Thomas. They follow him on the first part, that is, the change on the meaning of virtue and the the sequence, three or four, virtue, gifts, beatitude, and fruits. And then it became constantly refined. Some you of St. Victor goes back, comes back to the end of Franciscan school. Bernard comes to on the uh, wisdom as tasty knowledge. Scientia sapida. You, and you will know that St. Thomas distances himself from this. So that's the situation in which St. Thomas starts. And he keeps his, he has a very strong interest on the gifts. Now, why has he a strong interest in the gift? What is the theological stake he sees in it? It's simple. The Holy Spirit is not in man without his gifts. So what Father Emery yesterday and you were discussing on the gifts, the, you know, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit as gift is in their mind implies as a corollary the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you want to express it, you can say for St. Thomas, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the way to account of the presence of the Holy Spirit in graced action. That's what he sees in the question. That's what he wants to pursue. And he knows it's a difficult task because if you read, you know, if you see the length of the status questionis in the sentences, in the Summa, if you look at the same thing in Albert, Bonaventure, and even further up, you realize that they are making a very long status questionis, even in not as any disputed questions where you would expect such a refined and extensive treatment, even in a work of introduction <coughs> such as the Summa. So that tells the reader this is a difficult question and there have been many attempts to resolve it. So what is the objective that St. Thomas wants to maintain in undertaking the question of the gift of the Holy Spirit? To distinguish the gift from the virtues in such a way and to find a suitable reason for this distinction 
a reason to wit which would apply either to all virtues or to none of the gifts, or vice versa. So you, you really would be able to say, to distinguish specifically virtues from gifts. That's what he wants to do. That's the program. That's, I take from this summa, that's where he expresses it as clearly as possible, but it's, I think it's true of all his work. Now, in his life, his academic life, we can distinguish three different periods in which he gave different <coughs> approaches to the, to the question of the gifts. The first stage, which I characterize by modus, you will understand or you would imagine why, we find in four texts. Super is ion, three sentences, distinction to the Super Galatheum, chapter 5, lecture 5, Super Mateum, <coughs> chapter 5, lecture 2. So, starting from the Super Isaiah, you see that St. Thomas being Albert Bachelor's assistant, you know, scriptural bachelor, when he stumbles on the, you know, chapter 11 of Isaiah, as he started with chapter 4, of course, he goes. And he just does a little <coughs> question within the commentary, which is a summary of Albert's teaching. No, takes this a little bit in further in the sentences in Galatian and Matthew which is a later text shows hesitations now we can compare those texts with three different features the first most known and expected the distinction between virtues and gifts humano modo Supramodum humanum. And this we found in all the four texts. We, something that goes back to Philip the Chancellor, what I call Philip the Chancellor's example, <coughs> I'll exp explain to you now. The distinction of virtues and gifts in an ascending series of four acts. And the distinction is illustrated by the following example. The first rational act toward the end is believing. The second one is understanding with taste, cum sapore. The third one is full purity of the heart, as it is possible in via. The immediate seeing of God is conjoined to full purity of the heart in patria. That's the example. So you have believing, understanding with sapore. It's very difficult to translate in English because with taste you means that you are elegant, but it means it tastes to you. And the third one is fueled purity of the art. So you find the sequence. This example is taken by Albert, and Albert adds to it a scriptural basis. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. The, the traduction, translation in English, even from the Revised Standard Version, is not the best. It's, I take the Vulgate. Videmus non perspeculum in enigmate 
tunc autem facie ad facie. So, per speculum, through a mirror, in enigmate, it's not dimly, it's as in an enigma. It's a mystery, something enigmatic. So that helps, you know, and the, so faith is bound to the enigmatic notion. And the gift of understanding frees you from this, goes beyond. That's what Albert, you know, reinforces from Philip the Chancellor. And St. Thomas follow through this in three of those four texts. You know, Matthew indicates already some hesitation. Then comes the four, the St. Thomas proper edition, which we see in the sentences, appear in the sentences, comparison between heroical virtues and gifts, human virtues, and the seven virtues. So, what is this distinction in Aristotle? You know, in chapter seven, there is a characterization of six states, three of which which are praiseworthy and desirable, three of which are not praiseworthy, of you know, subject of blame, and undesirable. And if you take, and they function as three pairs. The extremes is the godlike, or hero, and the inferior extreme is the brute. Now, if you bite your nails or eat raw, mesh, raw meat, as I do, you belong to the brutish category, <laughs> according to Aristotle. Then, in between, as the standard, you have the virtuous man and the vicious man. And then, the closing, Part, the less different, is the encrates acrates, the one who has moral control, the one who does not have moral control. And it has to do with, for Aristotle, it's a very important thing to help distinguish the part of reason and the part of appetites in moral action and moral disposition. Because in virtue, you have harmony, so you don't see them as in vice. So the, you know, a vicious man enjoys and what he, the evil he does and reasons <coughs> it away. So he has no inner conflict. Whereas the encrates knows what he ought to do and at times fails to do it. So there is a conflict. And he does not deliberate about failing. It just happens to him in a certain way by caving of reason. The acrates, the encrates resist and the acrates caves. So there you see the presence of two operative principles in moral action by their conflicts. That's the main, main point. What you do with the godlike or hero and the brute is, remains another question. I think it's very important at the bottom. The brute and the vicious are not the same. It has to do also with who is subject to trial in court. A vicious, yes. Not necessarily a brute. It belongs probably more to the hospital. 
Now, in Aristotle, with the godlike, he says the heroes are godlike virtues, as the Lacedaemonians call their heroes. But when I read Sparta in Aristotle, I have always a little question mark. Aristotle, unlike Plato, is not a great admirer of Sparta. Far from it. So maybe shouldn't take this all so formally. St. Thomas did. So he says there is a regime of virtue, which is the common regime of human virtue. Then there is another regime of virtue, which are divine virtues. So you have human virtues, divine virtues. And his main task, then in the sentences, is to explain this. As in a way to account for the distinction from gifts, from virtue, and their mutual relation. So again, just this little simple thing: the gifts. You know, an act can belong to a man in three ways: by the power which produces it, by its object, or by its mode. Now, the two first aspects of the division do not allow for a distinction between gifts and virtues, because they are in the same powers, and they do not necessarily have different objects. Theological virtues have God for object, carnal virtues have the created realm for object. Gifts, not directly. So he takes the distinction in the mode. And he will, you will see in this text, he characterizes the human mode of action as belonging to the virtue, and the supramodo humano, supramodum humano <coughs> as characterizing the gifts. And that's all it has, and he insists mostly on the question of faith. And that, I think, leads him in a little bit uh, in a serious problem. Does the gift of understanding relieve us, relieve us from the obscurity of faith? In Galatians, he comes very close to say this. And it was amusing when I was taking the English translation, I realized that the English translator modified so not to be as shocking. So I'll read the unmodified translation, and then I will read it as it ought to be written. To know the invisible things of God darkly is in, the, in keeping with the human mode such knowledge pertains to the virtue of faith. To know the same things more penetratingly and above the human mode pertains to the gift of understanding. More penetratingly, in fact, seeks to translate and does not translate perspicui. Perspicui, I checked yesterday what would be the best English is evidently. So, 
there in Galatians, pushing the throttle a bit too far, he puts the gift of faith, of understanding, beyond the limit of obscurity of faith. And of course, you know, he who goes in our own light in his theological mind. So, I believe this is more the problem among other things, and you can see on the modus, if you want, is reflection on the modus, the distinction of modus, go in the treatise on grace, and do the research substantia actus modus actus. That's the new distinction that he's working, the substance <coughs> of an act and its mode. And the treatise of grace is a very important intermediary element on this question. So the modus question, which was his prize trouvaille, you know, finding as a young, brilliant doctoral student, got him a little bit in a problem, which I think he was aware of, and changes, leads into a change. Now, in the Secunda Secundae, we start stage two. <coughs> Qualified no longer by modus, but by instinctus. And Aquinas signals himself that he's up to a fresh start. Accordingly, in order to differentiate the gifts from the virtue, we must be guided by the way in which scripture expresses itself. For we find there that the term employed is spirit rather than gift. For thus it is written, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, etc., shall rest upon him. So, this leads him to think, spirit, what do we get in spirit? Inspiratio, spiritus, inspiratio, inspiratio exterior motio, for which we associate instinctus divin. Let me explain that. Spiritus, on him shall rest a spirit of understanding, a breath of understanding. You know, it's really the idea of air blowing. So, you get spiritus, then this inspiration, which is an exterior motion for him that passes inside. That's what is an inspiration. <coughs> So he defines, now he brings a definition of the gifts, different from the virtues. The gifts are perfection of man, whereby he is disposed so as to be amenable to the promptings of God. Divinus instinctus. When in the question of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the translator translates by instinct, you ought to slash this immediately and replace it by prompting. Because if you think of instinct, you will think of the word, the word is used in our modern language, in English or in French or in other Romans language, which is something 
animal unreflected behavior, survival instinct, that we could have done an extensive study of the uses of instinct to spice and hummus with a question, that is the domestic question, whether instinctus divinus denies that the act has been deliberated, which is the 20th century French Thomist's position about the gift, and they will buttress their position on this. Now they have some reason to do this, because the text that Thomas is using, so he had Nicomachean Ethics 7, now he's turning to Liber de Bona Fortuna, which is a Latin version of composed of two different chapters from Aristotle, one from the Magna Moralia, one from the Eudemian Ethics, on the role of good fortune. Two kids. What is the role of good fortune in human action? And there, this is a very important text for St. Thomas. You can see him, you know, it's uh, the De Malo question six, it's at the heart, you know, how you need, you can't reason and desire to reason, and so you need an external superior mover. That's a rephrasing of some statements of this chapter. But Aristotle says also in this chapter, those who are moved by a divine motion to, is not useful for them to follow the counsels of reason. So St. Thomas quotes this, where you have instinctus and unnecessary to follow the counsels of reason. Does he really conclude that the act of gift is not deliberated, contrary to the acts of virtues, which are habitus deliberatibus? So you could not, you know. No, he does not. He gets awfully close to do it. You could argue with everybody from Froger, Barthélemy Froger, Reginald Garigou-Lagrange, Michel Marie Labourdet, you could say that there is a case for it. But it is not there. There's no way you can use the term instinctus to support the conclusion, because on the contrary, you have instinctus rationis. And there's only one case where instinctus is associated with an absence of deliberation is in the case of Cephas. And the verb associated in, is aripitur, which is almost possessed, taken away from himself. So one instance which is very particular does not allow you to say that instinctus for St. Thomas means non-deliberative. You cannot do this. You could argue that he should have done it. That would help us. But that's not what he has done. So 
where what he believes there is you can say you can explain the difference between gift and reason by two levels of motion motion of reason motion of the holy spirit as human virtues render the affective powers receptive to the motion of reason so the gifts of the Holy Spirit renders all the human powers receptive to the motion of God, and more specifically, that of the Holy Spirit. Now, the argumentation that he uses in question 68 is exactly the one he used in question 63 about the infused virtue. And I think is motion there the annoying thing, which is not unpacked. Due du sunt movencia in anima. There are two movers in the soul, says Aristotle, according to the Latin translation. Reason and desire. And one moves formally, the other moves efficiently. This is not clearly put in line in question 68. So, instinct is the key concept, but the question comes with the deliberation and the other question on what kind of motion are we speaking about? Now why is there a problem with an undeliberated act? Well, if it's a superior act to the virtue, it could not be meritorious. Because you could not have a meritorious act which is not a deliberated act. Secondly, if you check the on modus, you will see that St. Thomas has a much more consistent line on providential guidance. God guides creatures according to their proper mode. For a man, it means bodiliness and the dependence of intellect on senses. It means timeliness. That's an Augustinian thing, that God moves material things through space and time, and God moves rational things only through time. But that reverse it, and you realize that taking time is part of God's providence over man. And that's a fundamental axiom for St. Thomas. And the third way, in which, which belongs to the human mode in, human, in divine providence, is freedom. So, I think we ought not to do away with deliberation in graced action. That puts too much of a contradiction. So, third moment, stage three, the secunda secundae. There should be an intermediary stage, which is the trees of grace, but I will, for the sake of simplicity and time, I will not do it. So in the second, secunda secunde, you s wonder what St. Thomas is going to do. 
a number of questions you can raise. Whether acts of virtue, virtues and gifts are conjoined in one supernatural act, or where, that is, where beatitudes or acts of gifts and virtue conjoined, or virtues perfected by gift, or whether virtue beatitudes or the acts of the gift alone. The question is not settled ever for St. Thomas. Now, what, how can we conceive of gift if we are to conceive of gift and we think we are committed to this? The prologue of the Secunda Secundae gives you an insight. It's the role of the intellectual habitus in moral action. He says, not, he doesn't say it quite this, he says, we shall treat of the intellectual virtue along with the gifts having the same name, that is wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and counsel. But I think it provides a model. Now you have an undeclared but very profound change, well, a declared, but the organization of intellectual gifts. There it says, it has seemed aquibus done, and the Leo IX says, William of uh, Auxerre. Well, that would be quibus Quibus done is everybody else since William of Auxerre up to St. Thomas in the sentences, and in the Prima Secundae, everybody else. That the gifts were organized by speculative knowledge with grasping on one hand and judgment, that is, gift of understanding for grasping, judgment, gift of wisdom. And the other two gifts, intellectual gifts, are belong to practical knowledge, gift of knowledge and gift of counsel. Scientia <coughs> since St. Augustine is always related to created things whereas wisdom is related to eternal things. Now he says no, we do not function like this. We have to think for all these gifts are ordained to supernatural knowledge, which is in us, takes the the foundation from faith. So now we begin, you know, not to oppose or contradistinguish faith and understanding, but we see how they work together. Faith comes from hearing. So you first have to grasp what you hear. If I were now turning to speak to French, I think a number of you would hear that I say something, assume that it is intelligible, but would not access that intelligibility. The understanding of what is heard bears more specifically, if you want, at this moment in the gift of understanding, understanding what is revealed in what is written. Joshua has stopped the sun. It is written. Is it revealed that the earth is stable and that the sun? No. You cannot, from the text, get it. It's not 
you may think Aristotle has said the Earth doesn't move. And that could be a very neat explanation. So to hear, to understand what is revealed in what is said is that's the role of understanding. And with this grasp, you can have judgment at different levels on divine things. That's wisdom. On created things, that's science. And on action, that counsel. So now you have a gift of faith. You know, you have faith that cannot work without the two gifts. It's not as you would have first gear and then second gear, <coughs> gear of virtues, gear of gifts. It means you have faith for St. Thomas in his account at this moment, is that you need to have understanding, wisdom, knowledge, and counsel to operate, in, to live in faith. By faith, you assent. So you say, Amen. I believe what you say is a rock for my life. Whether I understand it, it's clear that the apostle believed in many things that did, that did not understand and came to understand much later on. So, the last point where St. Thomas put last before one, a little something that is a reinterpretation of the humano modo, supramodum humanum, in the gift of wisdom that is clarified, but it is done for all the intellectual gifts. The question is, are, is wisdom in all those in the state of grace? When, when you are in the pulpit and you look at you know, the congregation, you wonder whether they have understanding, wisdom, knowledge, and counsel, and it is a real question. <laughs> And St. Thomas is what they all have, because it's necessary for salvation. What they have, they understand what they need to understand for their salvation. They can make judgment on God, on created things, and on action for themselves. But there is, some are endowed with a higher degree of wisdom. They know higher mysteries. And they can rule not only themselves, but others. And this pertains to the charism of the word of wisdom, sermo sapientia. So you have something which is charismatic, not, you may not, you do not have a need for deliberation in charism, but it is not properly the common gift of wisdom. Any pious believer seeking to live the love of God is endowed with wisdom. Not all can preach higher mystery. Not all can give good guidance, spiritual guidance. So this is a clarification. And finally, the conclusion. You see, I have based my talk on the intellectus fidei and how St. Thomas uses Aristotelian conception to account for what we hold to be true in faith. 
And this is very problematic. If you start theology like this, you do wrong. Theology, you know, you do Christian theology, that which is, pertains to Sacra Doctrina, first by listening to Revelation as it is received and transmitted through the tradition of the church. Now, for St. Thomas, he rightly identifies that one of the tradition, the main source of this question of the gifts is the De Sermone Domini in Monte from St. Augustine. And there he sees that St. Augustine makes adaptations of gifts to Beatitudes and then of both to petitions of the Our Father. And he tries to account for this. And eventually, he gives up. So in the Prima Secundae, he thinks, okay, now the gifts are moving toward the Beatitude. So fear of the Lord moves you toward poverty. So gifts are moving. And he said, that's what seems that that's St. Augustine's meaning. Secunda secundae, gift of piety. <coughs> no. no, he is doing it by ratione enumerationis. In reason of the order of the enumeration, that is exactly what St. Augustine did. He, he took the first beatitude and the last gift and paired them. So, beatitude of poverty, the gift of fear of the Lord. And he says, how can we be blessed in poverty if it is not by the operation of the sevenfold spirit, and that is fear of the Lord, which will lower down the tumefaction of pride, the tumor of pride. Because it's, you know, in countries like France or Italy, where people demonstrate very often in the street, they rarely do it for greater poverty. You know, they don't associate greater poverty to happiness. And we clearly do see tears and sorrow as a sign of unhappiness. So that's what St. Augustine sees. And he, but there, so he does it like this. So St. Thomas first thinks, oh, there is a reason. And then he says, no, it's arbitrary. There is this mechanical thing, first and last, and you go through. And in his last road on this, in question 139, 139 of the second day, he reverentially, reverentially defers to the Augustinian Factoritas granting that some fittingness is maintained in the adaptation. And I read the translation, and I will read my own translation. Augustine makes the Beatitudes correspond to the gifts according to the order in which they are set forth, a certain fittingness being nevertheless considered. That was my tradition. The tradition which I crossed out, observing at at the same time, a certain fittingness between them. 
considerata tamen aliqua convenientia. I wish not to translate tamen as simple. Because that's really reverential exposition. He's clearly, in scholastic polite language, he's parting away from an authority. Had he read all and carefully all the De Sermone Domini in he would have seen that Saint Augustine never claimed to be authoritative on this. Miki videtur. Twice Saint Augustine writes Miki videtur. Then in the concluding paragraph, he says, I have built this explanation of this interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount around the number seven, as you know I like to do. <laughs> now, my conclusion, just if you look at St. Augustine, there are few texts, this, the Samone Domini in Monte, belongs to an early period. The use of the septenary from Isaiah will be found in a later period in a totally different way, where it is seven against ten. 150 fish brought down to 17, brought down to 10, and 7, that is 10 and the law, 7, the Holy Spirit. We cannot observe the law without the Holy Spirit. That puts the Augustinian authority in great, you know, shows that it is not so much of an authority. It's an interesting finding, good for preaching but probably not a good source for theology. And I would claim that this weakness in the conception of the tradition accounts for St. Thomas' instability, which I think I have shown. But thank you. If you want to join the, the Spirit as a gift, as its proper name, the mission of the divine persons, you will be very tempted or expecting to be able to find the corresponding. But St. Thomas leaves, it's like in construction, he leaves some waiting stones and he builds something without connection. I think that he expected to integrate both in the sentences and in the Summa the question of divine mission and the question of gifts. That's so you are led to expect it, but he didn't do it. Now, it's also the way that he works and they work with folders. So he has a folder for divine mission. He has another one for gifts. He assumed that there is a connection and if he has the time to think about it, he may work out the connection. If he doesn't, then he develops those things apart. And I believe that's the case here. Yeah, because wisdom in the question on the mission is not the gift of wisdom. Because you, it's distinguished wisdom in love and not the uh, wisdom, science, understanding, you know, 
So you, it's the pairing, <coughs> the division that he makes has to do with wisdom, participation, you know, in the mission of the sun and the presence of the sun in us, and love, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. But that sense of wisdom and the technical sense of wisdom that you have in the question on the gift, you wish they would be the same, but there he has not worked out the connection. Why advanced fools are these seven gifts of the Holy Spirit necessary for salvation? Grace, infused virtues, reason, that would seem to be enough. Oh, what you I this they have, St. Thomas teaches it. But uh, another story with John Corbett somewhere around. And as the defense, after the defense of his dissertation, we went into the Mensa in Freeport. And Pinkers was there because he was the moderator. And at that time, I was teaching a course on infused virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to start with the catechism. Look, one paragraph. You know, and Father Pinkers was the redactor of that part of the catechism. But Father, there is only one paragraph on gifts and infused virtue. How come? So, you know, if you read the sources of Morse, you, you know what he thinks about it. And then he gave me two very useful answers. And I learned a lot from this moment. This is a doctrine of the school of theology which the magisterium has never assumed as such. We did not feel that we should impose it on the catechism of the universal church. Hmm. Well, it was very informative. Then you realize, you know, because the distinction in gifts and there is, I have here, and uh, you find in the early theologians an objection. Isn't that many habitus of grace? No, because that made 14 at least. And what is the relation of the infused virtue to the acquired virtue and to the gifts? That's because. So you can see what, how each of these questions arose. You can see what is I'm saying. You want to account for what you believe with the same intellectual rigor with which Aristotle was able to account for human action. That's what they Now, with 14 <coughs> habitus of grace, at least, it's also propositions who objects this series. I think it's a lot. Now, my question is, you know, when we say the gift of the Holy Spirit is a traditional thing, I think Gardet was totally mistaken. The description of the Holy Spirit through the text of Isaiah, yes, it's a common feature of the doctrine of the church since Irenaeus. Why it became so, because, you know, it's not the text that is used by Christ in Nazareth. It is not immediately related to St. Paul, but to John. I think because it helps to integrate two very important things, which are Zechariah and the book of Revelation. 
But that's what it says. It's the Holy Spirit is revealed to us in this way. Can we imply then that we have to use term by term and pair it to the virtues to account for grace action or the presence of the Holy Spirit in grace action? There's a large step between the two. And I, I don't think that the doctrine of the sevenfold thing is very, at the end, is very helpful. It's very, you know, I've not wasted my time because I've gained a lot of insights and, you know, frequented very nice people in the 20th century, read wonderful things which have helped me. But intellectually, if I were to say a proposal for today's intellectus fidei, in line with the magisterium, I would not push the gift too far. As you receive the Holy Spirit at you know, baptism and confirmation, the kind of spirit is described biblically in line seven. Yes. Now, how can we account of the presence of the sevenfold Holy Spirit, you know, the one spirit seven by his operation, in graced action? Should we follow each of the terms? I'm not sure. Or should we follow them in contradistinction with virtues? This, I believe. The topics. I just have one quick question about, um, about wisdom. Um, does Thomas have any use for the traditional and uh, traditional etymological connection between wisdom and taste? No. <laughs> I'll give you my poll. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's really. That comes from Anselm, William of Saint Thierry, Bernard. You of Saint Victor, even this, it's true. It may be true in Latin, but it is not true in other languages. No, it's certainly not. And it's a general move that he makes. You see, for him, perception frui is something we live. It's not an object by which we distinguish spiritual reality. Let's thank uh, Father Dan McCorkle.